One of the universal descriptions of waking up is remembering. You know, the word remember, reconnect. That a moment of wakefulness is a moment of reconnecting with what's real and what's true and what we really ultimately cherish or value. So we can look back on today or any day and sense how much remembering went on, you know? How many moments did we re-enter that quality of aliveness? It could be pleasant, it could be unpleasant, exciting, boring, but presence, mindfulness, where the fullness of our awareness was with what was happening. Remembering happens when we sometimes get struck by the dearness of someone that's close to us or by a new blossom. Each time you just kind of get stop, drop away the preoccupation. There's that quality of, ah, yeah, aliveness. It happens any time that we recognize we're thinking and wake up out of it and feel our breath and our body. It's a sense of really being here. Now, when we're not remembering for long stretches, we get rattled because we all of a sudden realize life's feeling kind of dry. You know, there's a, there's a quality of deep routine that we're lost in, and that very rattling is a wake-up. That is another moment where we can go, oh yeah, even though what we're coming back to might be a sense of real disappointment in ourselves, our fear that we'll never get it together this lifetime, it's still a wake-up. It's amazing how strong the tug is to reside in familiar thoughts and habits. I mean, routine is a powerful gravitational field, isn't it? We all go into it, enter into it day after day. So being habitual really is the challenge on the path. And it's meant to be that way. And we all get caught, we all get habituated, desensitized, not here. And we're all, in some deep way, seeking to find the wise ways to remember, the ways to come back home again. Coming home isn't coming back to something static or familiar. It's really coming back to a quality of living presence. In a sense, it's remembering who we are, but there's no self in that. It's really the who we are, which is awareness, is here, is creative. A story I like has to do with a uh, woman who teaches college students art. And her four-year-old at some point asked what she did. And she said, well, I teach art to these college students. And the child had a very puzzled look. And she said, you mean they forgot? And we all forget, you know. We forget the inner poet or the inner artist or the one who loves to play, the one who loves to dance the creative and spontaneous being. We get civilized out of it in some sad way. So our path is a path of remembering. The Buddha taught that while we often live unconsciously and on automatic pilot, we can all learn to wake up and it just takes practice. That it's our capacity to wake up out of routine. And in the Buddha's time, the root of the practices of awakening were described as taking refuge. That's a word that gets sometimes misunderstood in contemporary culture, because it's not taking refuge as in to find any of the types of safety we normally try to hold on to. It's taking refuge in truth, in what's real in the life of this moment. It's taking refuge from our habituality, from being asleep. We're protecting ourselves from going into a trance. Practice is taking refuge. What I like about the word or the language of taking refuge is the quality of intentionality. One thing we find as we go deeper and deeper into the path 
is that the more we wake up, the more intentional we are about waking up, the more consciously we cherish it, and the more our choices and our motivation is aligned with it. So there's an intentionality in taking refuge. We all take refuge. We're doing it already. We take refuge in certain states of mind, in certain activities, and sometimes, very often, it's a kind of refuge that's an escape or that's addictive, and sometimes we're taking refuge in a wise way. But this is what I'd like to go more into tonight, which is the classical teachings on taking refuge and what they really mean to us today. Taking refuge in spiritual life has been described as the triple gem. It has three very interdependent parts. And in classical language, they were described as taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and in the Sangha. Very briefly, taking refuge in the Buddha is to take refuge in awakening, in our capacity to awaken, in awakened nature. Taking refuge in the Dharma is to take refuge in the path, in truth, in the ways that help us remember. Taking refuge in the Sangha is to take refuge in spiritual community, in our relationships, in the community of all beings. So let's look at them one by one. The first of the classical phrases, I take refuge in the Buddha. This is a way of bowing to our innate capacity to wake up, to realize who we are and be free. At the end of the Buddha's life, he said a few things that I think were actually the most wonderful way of saying, don't look towards me, I'm not it, I'm an example, but it's all inside you. Be a light unto thyself. All his final instructions had to do with the truth of our awakening Buddha nature. We all are awakening Buddhas. And that we can only discover that by paying attention to our own experience. I want to read to you from a Zen master named Chanel. It's tragic. People have been deluded for so long. They do not recognize that their own minds are the true Buddhas. They do not recognize that their own natures are the true Dharma. They want to search for the Dharma, yet they still look far away for holy ones. They want to search for the Buddha, but they will not observe their own hearts and minds. All the Buddhas of the past were merely persons who understood their hearts and minds. All the sages and saints of the present are likewise merely people who have cultivated and understood their nature. All future meditators should rely on this truth as well. I hope that you who cultivate the path will never search outside. The nature of the mind, the heart, is unstained. It is originally whole and complete in itself. To realize this is freedom. If we really trusted and connected with that truth, that it's within us, that nature, it's whole, it's unstained, it's alive, we would be free. Our lack of freedom is that we don't trust. Many of you know the story of after the Buddha's enlightenment experience, people asking him who he was, a god or a man, and him responding, I'm awake. That is Buddha nature wakefulness. Because we get lost, don't trust who we are, taking refuge in the Buddha sometimes can be done by taking refuge in who we trust, or an example we sense is a manifestation of Buddha nature. In every path I've ever encountered, this kind of bridging of invoking a presence or a sense of a being outside ourselves, 
the Buddha, Christ, Great Spirit, Divine Mother, Mother Teresa, Gandhi, whatever, whoever we sense as manifesting and expressing that nature can serve as a bridge to remind us, to bring us back home to that which is true within ourselves. So this is a very powerful, skillful means to reflect on and invoke and take refuge in that which expresses Buddha nature. When I first got introduced to this practice, this is one of my first retreats, and we were walked through the refuges, and they were described in a very traditional manner. Um, I take refuge in the Buddha as a historical being. Um, I had enormous resistance. I felt like in some way I was taking refuge to some man who lived 2,500 years ago that well may have been enlightened, but in some way it took me away from feeling my own uh, nature. And over the years, I didn't do it so much. Instead, I experimented and found that when I instead reflected on taking refuge in the Buddhas, in the Bodhisattvas, in awakened beings through all time, when my imagery had more to do with the bodhisattva of compassion, just a sense of beingness that was boundless and compassionate, then I could sense that being who I was also. And it wasn't until more recently, just several years ago, that I realized that's taking refuge in the Buddha. It's a very creative experiment for all of us to find what it is that invokes that sense of inner Buddha nature. The philosopher, Celtic um, mystic O'Donohue writes, don't demean longing of our hearts by straining outside ourselves to a cold, distant, abstract God. To take refuge in an alive way in Buddha nature is to take refuge in the awakening being within our own selves. So take a moment to reflect on this first of the three refuges, if you will, to close your eyes. Take a moment to connect and feel your heart. be present with whatever's true for you, the sensations in your body, the moods. And then bring to mind a being that expresses or represents wisdom and compassion to you. And to give you some ideas about it, it can be a living person, a mythical being, or historical being, It can be just light or energy. Sometimes it's easier if there is a human form. If that's the case, look into the eyes and sense the boundless love and kindness and receptivity that's there. Let whatever being you invoke be a being that is truly kind, wise, loving. Sense the light from this being radiating out and surrounding you. Let this light in a very wonderful way permeate your being. The top of the head, the brow, feeling light pouring in, the throat, the heart, the light of love, compassion, wisdom that is present in this universe that moves through us as we wake up. Letting yourself become this being of light, of love, feeling this is your identity, your truth, filled with that presence, radiant.
I take refuge in Buddha nature, in this awakening heart-mind. Taking refuge is a bowing to the truth of Buddha nature, acknowledging, embracing, manifesting. Carrying that with you, opening your eyes if you like. This is from Kabir. Inside this clay jug there are canyons and pine mountains and the maker of canyons and pine mountains. All seven oceans are inside and hundreds of millions of stars. The acid that tests gold is there and the one who judges jewels and the music from the strings no one touches and the source of all water. If you want the truth, I will tell you the truth, friend. Listen. The God whom I love is inside. So this is the first of the triple gem, taking refuge in Buddha nature, in our capacity and potential to be awake. The second of the three refuges is taking refuge in the Dharma, in the path. Again, the Buddha, right before he died, said, don't believe me. He really did. That's one of the very things that all the different kinds of classical scriptures all agree on. He said, don't believe me. He said the terms, and this was mentioned last week, ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself. Look. Taking refuge in the Dharma is taking refuge in paying attention, learning to pay attention. This is a path of awareness, learning to look, learning to feel what's true, become and live the truth. We learn to listen with a receptive heart. This is really the grounds of meditation practice, to live fully what's happening. So taking refuge in the Dharma is taking refuge in all those practices which help us to wake up. Now, they are classically thought of as the formal practices, described as taking refuge in the Dharma, taking refuge in sitting practice and walking practice and training mindfulness. So let me start by saying a bit about that, that in all spiritual paths, the necessity of intentionally quieting the mind so that we can be more here is described in all ways. There are many ways to do it. But developing some practice to train that muscle of the mind to quiet down, to come back, to be here, to touch the living reality of this moment is a part of all spiritual paths. We all are so conditioned to be scattered. We're so habituated to kind of trancing out, forgetting. Training is necessary. So almost every teacher I know encourages practice in in quite a regular way. Now, this can sometimes be like the pink elephant in the room we're saying don't pay attention to because most of us deep down feel that we're not practicing enough and we're not doing it right. So refuge in the Dharma can sometimes bring up a lot of sense of inadequacy. Not enough. Don't do it right. You know, we can sit here and, as we're sitting up, look out through the corner of our eye and see people sitting very still and straight and think we're the only one that's minds are kind of drifting off and wandering and thinking about this and that, and we're the only ones waiting for the bell, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's not true, you know. Or else we're the only ones that go home and spend the week doing this and that and never actually practice not true either. We're not the only ones. So this is something that's not talked about a lot in meditation classes, how much practice is emphasized, encouraged, and not done. (laughs) So what do we do with that? I'll just leave that for the moment. (laughs) Practicing at home, having a regular daily practice is very radical and very transforming and quite hard to do on our own. 
it's hard to do for the same reason that when we come here and sit and try to get quiet, there's so much that's pulling us away. It's even bigger at home when we don't have 60, 70 other people and we don't have a gui- it being guided and so on. It's very hard to stop our world. Most of us feel very tugged into doing mode, like there's some anxiety in us and if we sit and meditate, we're not doing the things we need to get done so we can relax and feel a little better about ourselves. Isn't that so? Isn't that a syndrome? I know that one real well. Or else there's some sense there's just something more pleasant to do. Or there's a sense that if we sit down, there's this real deep discomfort or too much to handle or it just will not be fun. So we don't much. It's hard. And yet I think most of us sense that as we do it more and when we do, there's a quality of touching into what's true that's enormously healing and that changes our day. Sitting, formal sitting in our daily life gives a touchstone. So during the day we get drift off and forget, but we have more inclination to remember. The most famous phrase almost in the whole Buddha Dharma is that enlightenment is an accident and practice makes us accident prone, right? I mean, you know that one. And there's truth to it. We kind of intuit that. So even when we sit and just sit for a short time, and even when all that happens is our minds drift, there's a quality of planting a seed, sensing an intentionality to be here that's quite beautiful, that really nourishes our soul. Up at IMS, I saw once a cartoon with these two monks, one old one, one young one sitting, and the old one saying to the young one, nothing else happens, this is it. <laughs> They're just sitting. A lot might not happen, it just doesn't matter. It's beginning to see more clearly as life just occurs that it's all changing, that we don't have to be so identified that there can be some freedom in the midst of whatever arises. Taking refuge in practice, in a daily practice, gives us a little more of a sense of getting kinder with what comes out. It's said that our sorrows and wounds are healed only when we touch them with compassion. We don't touch them with compassion if we won't stop and be with them and yet we don't want to. So that's a pull. Taking refuge in the Dharma is taking refuge in wakeful presence. So there's formal practice, and then there's informal practice of taking refuge in the Dharma. There's a really big confusion around spiritual practice, and it goes like this, that when we talk about meditation, we're talking about sitting or maybe about walking, pacing, you know, 15 yards or 10, you know, back and forth. It's like saying that to really live a spiritual life, you're sitting still all the time, you know? Meditation is not sitting. Meditation is a quality of paying attention, a receptive heart. And it happens in the midst of all, and it is expressed in many ways. One uh, Zazen priest, Hakuin, writes, your singing and dancing is none other than the voice of the Dharma. So Dharma is all that supports and expresses awakening. It's not about taming ourselves or controlling ourselves. It's about living fully in a mindful, wakeful way. This is again John O'Donohue. He describes how there is nothing as wild in the universe as the presence of God. Reason people find so little sense of the divine is that they're so controlled and defended. We've lost sense of our own wildness. Then there's the question, what have we done with our wildness? You can ask yourself, what have you done with your wildness? What have we done with our passion, our creativity, our playfulness, 
our spontaneity. Again, it gets cultivated out of us. We're warned about it. It's dangerous. And then we come into meditation settings and it looks everything or anything but wild. Does this look wild? (laughs) Really? And yet, we're really training to be with the wildness of our life. And yes, we're sitting still here, but that doesn't mean we always sit still. To learn to have the quality of mindfulness and heartfulness that we can find freedom in the midst, that we can express our wildness in a wakeful way. Refuge in the Dharma is discovering all the ways in our daily life, throughout our life, that we can reconnect. And there are countless ways. For many of us, walking in the woods. For many of us, music, poetry, playing with our children being quiet or being noisy. There are so many ways. Right near to my house, there's a small spot of woods, and it's the only place I can go to and just walk from my house and have a sense that the suburbs have receded into the distance and there's just nature. And and so like many people, one of my great ways of being kind of revived or refreshed or coming back to naturalness is to be in this little spot of woods. But there's an interesting thing that happens because it's very small. And so I get on the path, and half the time that I'm on this path, I'm trying to figure out ways to make it longer and how I might curve around and get a little more time in the woods. And all that time that I'm plotting, you know, no one's home. (laughs) Not in the good sense of no one's home. (laughs) There's not presence. We can wake our beings up in all circumstances if we're mindful. If I can walk through the suburban part of my neighborhood and be mindful, then I'll wake up. Some circumstances are more easy than others. So the question is, how do we know? How do we know what is really going to incline us towards freedom? How do we know what activities, what ways of being are really going to wake us up? Should I do this practice or go Sufi dancing? Or who do I hang out with? Or should I work more or should I work less? Or what about having boundaries with what person? Or should I express my anger or do I just sit and meditate on it? There's every day, every moment, these kind of what the Buddha called wise discrimination about what will most be a refuge in the Dharma. The Buddha taught that if we can begin to see cause and effect, and this happens as we get older, if we can begin to see that when I do this, this happens, we begin to gain a certain wisdom about how to take refuge in the Dharma. I'll give an example, which I think is one of the more sticky ones, but just to bring it up, which is what to do with anger. You know, how do we take refuge in the Dharma in a moment when anger has arisen? Sometimes we find out that if we express our anger, what happens is it really creates more distance, and we end up feeling more small, and we feel embarrassed about it, and we feel like we've just created you know, more of an enemy, more of a sense of alienation. Other times we find that if the relationship we're in has a container, a maturity to it, that by expressing anger, we actually come to more of a sense of honesty and connectedness. Other times we find that if we are feeling it but don't express it, but just pause and feel our bodies and the intensity of what's going on, it unlayers itself and we find under the anger real hurt or vulnerability and we can come from more of a genuine place. Taking refuge in the Dharma is to begin to watch and sense what works. It's always case by case. There's no real guidelines except, will this serve to awaken or will this create more suffering? And we begin to find that in certain situations, by expressing, we create more awakefulness. Or by not expressing but feeling into our bodies, we create more wakefulness. Taking refuge in the Dharma.
a lot of what really will determine whether there's more freedom or more suffering is our intention in any moment. We started tonight by sensing intention. What's our intention for being here? If we can connect to our intention and recognize our intention, it helps to wake us up both in the sense that sometimes our intention is to manipulate and grasp and avoid and escape, and by recognizing that, we're more present. Sometimes our intention is to create more love, and by recognizing that, we're more present, more capable. Usually our intentions are mixed. You might have noticed that, that in any situation, part of us is try- has an agenda and that's, and that's activated to prove something or impress or whatever. And then underneath that, we want to be connected and intimate. So it's really about being inclusive. We take refuge in any moment that we're recognizing what's going on. The key is to realize that there are no activities, no circumstances that are exempt that are not part of taking refuge in the Dharma. This is Gary Snyder. All of us are apprenticed to the same teacher that the religious institutions originally worked with, reality. Reality Insight says, master the 24 hours, do it well without self-pity. It is as hard to get the children herded into the carpool and down the road to the bus as it is to chant sutras in the Buddha hall on a cold morning changing the filter, wiping noses, going to meetings, picking up around the house, washing dishes, checking the dipstick. Don't let yourself think these are distracting you from your more serious pursuits. Such a round of chores is not a set of difficulties we hope to escape from so that we may do our practice, which will put us on a path. It is our path. We write off huge blocks of time as not spiritual, as not part of our Dharma practice. Perhaps the most radical way we can take refuge in the Dharma is to begin to include those back into what's real and what counts and what's our life. So I've mentioned two types of taking refuge in the Dharma. One, taking refuge in a formal sitting practice. The other, letting all activities of our life become our path. So we'll take a moment now to reflect on taking refuge in the Dharma, if you will. Again, coming into stillness and feeling the body and feeling your heart. Reflecting on what formal practices work for you. What the ways of paying attention you found bring you to more wakefulness. For some, it might be simple Vipassana practice. For others, prayer, readings, listening to the Dharma, metta meditations. What are the practices that you know bring you to more wakefulness, more truth, more of an open heart? Considering these, mentally reciting the phrase, I take refuge in the Dharma, as you bow and honor those practices that serve you, that awaken you, that free you. I take refuge in the Dharma, in the pathways that free this heart and mind. And then reflecting on all the places in your life that have the potential to be the path, the places 
or you can wake up more with more intention and attention where you walk each day through your house the people you talk to the tasks, the watering of plants, the driving, the coming and going honoring life as the path I take refuge in the Dharma in bringing a wakeful and receptive heart to all activities taking refuge in the Dharma is sensing our intentionality to awaken you can open your eyes if you'd like the primary domain of waking up all of our experiences for that matter are in relationship we are always in relationship in relationship with our inner life with each other with all of life so the third of the triple gem the last refuge is taking refuge in the Sangha in these relationships we're taking refuge in what's true the truth is we're all connected that any moment of our lives is influenced and conditioned by all the other beings that we're in touch with and all of life the Buddha said we're not independent we're interdependent inextricably in a web taking refuge in the Dharma in the most basic way is just bowing to the truth of that and in a moment of acknowledging it we wake up more to who we are it's not abstract if you think of it right now this moment of experience what creates this moment of experience it's partly created by the presence of everyone else who's come tonight it's partly created by what you ate earlier this evening it's partly created by the phase the moon is in and what El Nino is doing and how your parents related to each other we cannot describe this moment's experience without including all those interrelated forces and they're far too complex to name but just to begin to understand that all our moments of experience are conditioned by the relationships we're in this comes alive as we begin to bring more intention as we take conscious refuge in our relationships more mindful more present more heartful with our daily circle of beings with all beings this is one of my favorite of um, readings about the power of Sangha many of you I think know this by Andrea Shah a certain Bektashi dervish was respected for his piety and appearance of virtue whenever anyone asked him how he had become so holy he always answered I know what is in the Quran one day he had just given this reply to an inquirer in a coffee house when an imbecile asked well what is in the Quran in the Quran said the Bektashi there are two pressed flowers and a letter from my friend Abdullah as many of you know we've been forming these Kalyanamita groups now over the last year and a half and um, so many people in the last few months that have talked to me about their practice and about how things are emerging on the spiritual front have said that their experiences in these groups and Kalyanamita mean spiritual friends is probably the most profound and transformative part of the path for them there is such power to realizing our connection with each other such grace in sensing spiritual friendship you know many of you have heard that Thich Nhat Hanh said in this generation the Buddha is the Sangha our awakening is our realization of community it's quite beautiful to put it that way 
the Venerable Ananda said to the Buddha, this is from the scriptures, half of this holy life, Lord, is good and noble friends, companionship with the good. Do not say that, Ananda, says the Buddha. It is the whole of this holy life, this friendship, companionship, and association. We deepen our sense of that with the metta, our loving-kindness practice, by offering kindness and love to our own being and to each other. It opens our hearts to our connection. We experience it with the compassion practices by being willing to look and see each other's vulnerability, our own vulnerability. It opens our hearts. Again, the Buddha. Some days we feel like strangers, with ourselves, with others, with life. When our heart opens, we will realize that we belong just here, with each other, with this life. So as much as the trees belong and as much as this earth is here, we're a part of, we belong. And that quality of feeling a part of starts with including the parts of our own being that we've pushed away. So, so much of practice is seeing how we block ourselves, how we reject and push away parts of our being. It's said that we're not seeking freedom. We are inherently free. Our practice is to discover what blocks us from that realization. To see the way we push away parts of our being and then to embrace with mindfulness, with care. And when we do, there's a natural way that we feel belonging. Alice Walker, and this is from The Color Purple. One day when I was sitting quiet and feeling like a motherless child, which I was, it came to me, that feeling of being part of everything, not separate at all. I knew that if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed, and I laughed and I cried and I run all around the house. I just knew what it was. In fact, when it happened, you can't miss it. So our final reflection, taking refuge in the Sangha. If you will, again, to sit up, if you can, into a position of alertness and ease. We've taken refuge in Buddha nature, in the awakening that is our innate nature. We've taken refuge in the Dharma and the pathways that we cherish that bring us home. So now we take refuge in Sangha, in the community of beings of which we belong, to which we belong, of which we are a part, beginning by reflecting who are the beings in my life. Reflect on your circle. Those beings where your experience is most obviously interwoven. As someone comes to mind, just bowing, ah, I take refuge in Sangha. To those that inspire you, to those you appreciate, to those that bring up a feeling of kindness, to those that there's challenge, difficulty. It's all part of Sangha. I take refuge in Sangha. I bow to the beings of my life. As we take refuge in Sangha, we sense our intention to be present, to open, to connect. Opening the awareness now to include all those that have gathered here, which is an intentional Sangha, intentional community. I take refuge in Sangha I bow to all of us here, to the beauty and truth of our interconnectedness, our capacity to help each other awaken, remind each other 
of the truth. And then we open the attention to the Sangha of all beings, sensing life everywhere. Offering the prayer, may all beings benefit from our practice, from this awakening. May all beings benefit. Just meditating, we take these refuges as a way of remembering, a way of coming home. For some, it can be quite powerful to use them in a very formal sense at the beginning of any practice, of any meditation. It deepens our intentionality to bow to our own awakening nature, perhaps first invoking the bodhisattvas or whatever most inspires us, bowing to our inner wakeful nature, bowing to the path that takes us home and to all the beings that we belong to. It's said that a prayer is answered in the way it is asked. The power of taking refuge, of taking these refuges, is in the sincerity and presence we bring to it. If you'd like to open your eyes, just a few more words and then we'll be closing. Taking the refuges in a classical way is considered a skillful means. It can be done in a formal sense. I take refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and in the Sangha. And you can do it in a creative way, creating your own way of coming to presence. Living the refuges is the path. Living the refuge of becoming Buddha nature, becoming that which is true becoming the path, letting all of life be the path of living wakefully in community. So we take the refuges formally as a skillful means if it works. And what I'd like to encourage you to do is experiment and see what works. I mentioned earlier that we have a um, kind of push-pull about practice at home. And next week, the talk will be on how to deepen our practice, how to work with the difficulties, how to let the difficulties in sitting practice become the path, be what helps us wake up. And as a way to lead into that, just to encourage you this week um, to sit each day, to literally sit down each day, but it can be for a minute. So this isn't like a huge task. It's something that it can be quite um, beautiful when a large group of people all have that intention to go a little further to the edge, you know, really um, be more intentional about sitting. There can be a power in that group intentionality. So it's an invitation to try this week to sit each day, to just sit down, to be with your experience, whether it's for one minute, 20 minutes, and see what happens. And then next week we'll talk both about how to work with what arises in practice and also about some of the challenges and ways of of deepening practice. A story just to share with you as part of closing is that a client of mine that hadn't been involved with meditation described his, his early introduction as he saw a poster and it said, breathe in, breathe out, smile. And at the bottom it said Thich Nhat Hanh. So for two years he went around and meditated Thich Nhat Hanh, Thich Nhat Hanh, Thich Nhat He just recited the, it was a mantra to him. He thought that's what he was saying was breathe in, breathe out, smile. <laughs> but he, so he just went, this is really true, two years, Thich Nhat Hanh, Thich Nhat Hanh. And <laughs> but he did it with tremendous sincerity and presence and it launched a very beautiful meditation career. (laughs) So I share that with you because if you sit for even a minute, just bring a care and a sincerity to that minute. And this way we're not setting something up as this huge hurdle that something's supposed to happen. 
just to sit and let it be a way of taking refuge. If you want to practice this week by formally taking the refuges, it's a wonderful experiment, and to do it in that, with that spirit of finding what brings you home, what wakes you up. It's said that deepening practice in this way is like first learning to swim, discovering that the water holds you up, discovering that moment after moment, life holds us up. We can trust it. Rio Khan, who's a wonderful um, poet, Zen poet and monk, said, to find the Buddhist law, drift east and west, come and go, entrusting yourself to the waves. What we're taking refuge in is the awareness of heart and mind that really is the truth of who we are, that carries us, that we can rest in. So I'll close with that, and if you will, just to sit up and close your eyes one last time. And we'll close as we began to sense just this moment, your deepest intention. to bow to that. And then to bring our voices together with the chanting of Om as a closing. Please take a full breath and then exhale. Inhaling again. Oh. Uh-huh.